Section 1 of Uther and the Grain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Parker Went, Hampton, Georgia, March 2022. Uther and the Grain by Warwick Deeping. Book 1, Chapter 1. Beneath the dark cornices of a thicket of wind-stunted pines stood a small company of women looking out into the hastening night. The half-light of evening lay over the scene, rolling wood and valley into a misty mass, while the horizon stood curbed by a belt of imminent clouds. In the western vault, a vast rent in the wall of gray gave out a blaze of transient gold that slanted like a spear shaft to a sullen sea. A wind cried restlessly amid the trees, gusty at intervals, but tuning its mood to a desolate and constant moan. There was an expression of despair on the face of the west. The woods were full of a vague woe and of troubled breathing. The trees seemed to sway to one another, to fling strange words with a tossing of hair and outstretched hands. The firs in the valley, swept and harrowed, undulated like a green lagoon. The women upon the hill were garbed after the fashion of gray nuns. Their gowns stood out blankly against the ascetic trunks of the pines. They were huddled together in a group like sheep under a thorn hedge when storms threaten. The dark ovals of their hoods were turned towards the south, where the white patch of a sail showed vaguely through the gathering gray. Between the hill and the cliffs lay a valley threaded by a meager stream that quavered through pastures. A mist hung there despite the wind. Folded by a circle of oaks rose the gray walls of an ecclesiastical building of no inconsiderable size, while the mournful clangor of a bell came up upon the wind, with a vague sound as of voices chanting. Valley, stream, and abbey were rapidly melting into the indefinite background of the night. Suddenly, a snarling murmur seemed to swell the plaining of the bell. A dark mass that was moving through the meadows beneath like a herd of kine broke into a fringe of hurrying specks that dissolved into the shadows of the circle of oaks. The bell still continued to toll, while the women beneath the pines shivered and drew closer together as though for warmth and comfort. There was not one among them who had not grasped the full significance of the sinister sound that had come to them from the valley. A novice, taller than her sisters, stood forward from the group as though eager to catch the first evidence of the deed that was to be done on that drear evening. She held up a hand to those behind her in mute appeal to them to listen. The bell had ceased pulsing. In its stead sounded a faint, eerie whimper, an occasional shrill cry that seemed to leap out of silence like a bubble from a pool where death has been. The women were shaken from their strained vigilance as by a wind. The utter gray of the hour seemed to stifle them. Some were on their knees praying and weeping. One had fainted and lay huddled against the trunk of a pine. It was such a tragedy as was often played in those days of disruption and despair. For Rome, the decrepit Saturn of history, had fallen from empire to a tottering dotage. Her colonies, those titans of the past, still quivered beneath the doom piled upon them by the Teuton. 
In Britain, the cry of a nation had gone out blindly into the night. Vodigern had perished in the flames of Genorium. Ricoboom, Rutupii, and Durovirum had fallen. The fair fields of Kent were open to the pirate, while Aurelius, stout soldier king, gathered spear and shield to remedy the need of Britain. The women upon the hill were but the creatures of destiny. Realism had touched them with cynical finger. The barbarians had come shorewards that day in their ships, and at the first breathing of the news the abbey dependents had fled, leaving none and novice to the mercies of the moment. It had become a matter of flight or martyrdom. Certain fervent women had chosen to remain beside their abscess in the abbey chapel to await with vesper chant and bell the coming of sword and sacks. Those more frail of spirit had fled with the novices from the valley and now knelt numb with a tense terror on the brow of that windswept hill, watching fearfully for the abbey's doom. They could imagine what was passing in the shadowy chapel where they had so often worshipped. The face of the Madonna would be gazing placidly on death, and on more than death. It was all very swift, very terrible. Thenceforward, cloister and garden were theirs no more. A red gleam started suddenly from the black mass in the valley. The nuns gripped hands and watched, while the gleam became a glare that poured steadily above the dark outline of the oaks. A long flame leapt up like a red finger above the trees. The belfry of the chapel rose blackly from a circlet of fire, and gilded smoke rolled away nebulously into the night. The barbarians had set torch to the place. The Abbey of Avangel went up in flame. The tall novice who had been kneeling in advance of the main company rose to her feet and turned to those who still watched and prayed under the pines. The girl's hood had fallen back. The hair that should have been primly coiffed rolled down in billowy bronze upon her shoulders. There was infinite pride on the wistful face, a certain scorn for the frailer folk who wept and found sustenance in prayer. The girl's eyes shone largely even in the meager light under the trees, and there was a straight courage about her lips. She approached and spoke to the woman who knelt and watched the burning abbey in a cataleptic stupor. Will you kneel all night, she said. The words were scourges in their purpose. Several of the nuns looked up from the flames in the valley. Shame on you, worldling, said one of the thin and thankless visage. Down on your knees, brat, and pray for the dead. The novice gave a curt low laugh. The reproofs of a year rankled in her like bitter herbs. Let the dead bury their dead, quoth she. I am for life and the living. Shame, shame, came the ready response. May the mother of mercy melt your proud heart and punish you for your sins. You are bad to the core. Shame or no shame, said the girl. My heart can grieve for death as well as thine, sister Claudia. And now the abbey's burnt. You may couch here and scold till dawn if you will. You may scold the heathen when they come to butcher you all. I warrant they will give such a beauty short shrift. The lean nun ventured no answer. She had been worsted before by this rebellious tongue and had discovered expediency in silence. Several of the women had risen and were thronging around the novice Egrain. 
querulous and fearful. Implicit faith, though pious and admirable in the extreme, neither pointed a path nor provided a lantern. Southwards lay the sea and the barbarians. The purlieus of Andreswold came down to touch the ocean. There was night in the sky, no refuge within miles, and wild folk enough in the world to make traveling sufficiently perilous. Moreover, the day's deed had hurried the women's emotions into a condition of vibrating panic. The unknown seemed to hem them in, to smother as with a cloak. They were like children who fear to stir in the dark and shrink from impalpable nothingness, as though a strange hand waited to grip them to some spiritual torture. As it was, they were fluttering among the pines like birds who fear the falcon. It grows dark, said one. Let Claudia pray for us. Egraine, you are wiser in the world than we. Truth, said the girl. You may bide and snivel with Claudia if you will. I am for Endurida through the woods. But the woods, said a child with wide dark eyes. The woods are fearful at night. They are kinder than the heathen, said Egraine, taking the girl's hand. Come with me, I will mother you. Even as she spoke, the novice saw a point of fire disjoint itself from the dark circle of the oaks below. Another and another followed it, and began to jerk hither and thither in the meadows. The dashes of flame gradually took a northern trend, as though the torch-bearers were for ascending the long slope that idled up to the ragged thicket of pines. She turned without further vigil, and made the most of her tidings in an appeal to the women under the trees. Look yonder, she said, pointing into the valley. Let Sister Claudia say whether she will wait till those torches come over the hill. There was an instant hubbub among the nuns. Cooped as they had been within the mothering arms of the church, peril found them utterly impotent when self-reliance and natural instinct were needed to shepherd them from danger. The night seemed to sweep like a wheel with the burning pyre in the meadows for Axel. The torches were moving hither and thither in fantastic fashion, as though the men who bore them were doubling right and left in the dark, like hounds casting about for a scent. The sight was sinister, and stirred the women to renewed panic. Egraine, help us! came the cry. Even tyranny is welcome in times of peril. Witless, resourceless, they gathered about her in a dumb stupor. Even Claudia lost her greed for martyrdom and became human. They were all eager enough for the forest now, and hungry for a leader. Egraine stood up among them like a tall figure of hope. Her eyes were on the east, where a weird glow above the treetops told her that the moon was rising. See, she said, we shall have light upon our way. There is a bridle path through the wold here that goes north and touches the road from Durovernum. I'm going by that path. Follow who will. We will follow Egraine, came the answer. North, east, and west lay Anderswold, sinister as a sea at night. The hill, tangled with gorse and bracken and sapped by burrows, dipped to it gradually like an outjutting of the land. To the east they could see a wide tangle of pines latticing the light of the moon. It was dark and the ground more than dubious to the feet. The women, nine in all, herded close on Egraine, who walked like an eastern shepherdess, with the sheep following in her track. First came Claudia, 
who had held sway over the linen, with malt, the stout cellarus. Next, Elaine and Lily, twin sisters, two nuns, and two novices. There was much stumbling, much clutching at one another in the dark, but, thanks to holy terror, their progress was in measure ungracefully speedy. The girl Egraine led with a keen gleam in her eyes and a queer cheerfulness upon her face, as she stepped out blithely for the dark mass where the wold began. Her sojourn in the abbey had been brief and stormy, a curt attempt at discipline that had failed most nobly. One might as well have sought to hem in spring with winter as to curb desire that leapt towards greenness and the dawn like joy. She had ever thought more of a net for her hair than of her rosary. The little pool in the pleasance had served as her mirror, casting back a full face set with amber-shadowed eyes, and a bosom more attuned to passion than to dreams of quiet sanctity. She had been the wayward child of the abbey flock, flooded with homilies, surrendered to eternal penances, yet holding her own in a fair worldly fashion that left the good women of the place wholly to leeward. Thrust out into the world again, she took to the wild like a fox to the woodland, while her more tractable conrades were like caged doves baffled by unaccustomed freedom. Matins, complines, vespers were no more. Cold stone arched no more to tomb her fancies. Above stretched the free dome of the sky, around the wilderness free and untainted. In lieu of psalms, she heard the gathering cry of the wind and the great voice of the forest at night. In due course, they came to where a dark mast betokened the rampart thickets of the wold, rising like a wall across the sky. Egraine hoped for the track and found it running like a white fillet about the brow of a wood. They followed it till it thrust into the trees, a thin thread in the shadows. As they went, great oaks overreached them with sinuous limbs. The vault was fretted innumerably with the faint overdome of the sky. Now and again a solitary star glimmered through. To the women that place seemed like an interminable cavern, where grotto on grotto dwindled away into oblivious gloom. But for the track's narrow comfort, Egraine and her company would have been impotent indeed. The prospect was sad for these folks who had lived for peace and had tuned their lives to placid chance and the balm of prayer. In Britain, Christ was worshipped and the cross adored, yet abbeys were burnt and children martyred and strong towns given over to sack and fire. Truth seemed to taunt them with the apparent impotence of their creed. The Abbess Gratia had often said that Britain, for its sloth and sin, deserved to meet the scourge of war, and here were her words exampled by her own stark death. The nuns talked of the state of the land as they plodded on through the night. There was no soul among them that had not been grossly stirred by the fate that had overtaken Avangel, Gratia, and her more zealous nuns. It was but natural that a cry for vengeance should have gained voice in the hearts of these outcast women, and that a certain quarrelous bitterness should have found tongue against those in power. Egraine, walking in the van, listened to their words and laughed 
with some scorn in her heart. You are very wise, all of you, she said presently over her shoulder. You speak of war and disruption as though the whole kingdom were in the dust. True, Kent is lost. The heathen have burnt defenseless places on the coast and have stormed a few towns. The Abbey of Avangel is not all Britain. Have we not Aurelius and the great Uther? Our folk will gather head anon and push these whelps into the sea. God grant it, said Claudia with a smirk heavenward. We need a man, quoth Egraine. Perhaps you will find him, pert one. Peril will, said the girl. There is no hero when there is no dragon or giant in need of the sword. Britain will find her knight ere long. Lud, said Malt, the cellarist. I wish I could find my supper. Thereat they all laughed, Egraine as heartily as any. Perhaps Claudia will pray for manna dew she said. Scoffer! It will be cranberries and bread and water till better seasons come. I have heard that there are wild grapes in the wold. Bread, quoth Malt. Did some kind soul say bread? I have a small loaf here under my habit. Ah, ye grain girl, I would chant twenty psalms for a morsel of that loaf. Chant away, sister. Begin on the attendite populi. I believe it is one of the longest. Don't trifle with a hungry wrench. The psalms, Malt, or not a crust. Keep it yourself, greedy hussy. I can go without. We will share it, all of us presently, said the girl, unless Malt wants to eat the whole. They held on under the ban of night, following the track like Theseus did his thread. At times the path struck out into a patch of open ground, covered with scrub and bracken, or bristling thick with firs. Egraine had never seen such timid folk as these nuns from Avangel. If a stick cracked, they would start, huddle together, and vow they heard footsteps. They mistook an owl's hoot for a heathen cry, and a nightjar's creaking note made them swear they caught the chaff of steel. Once they suffered a most shrewd fright. They drove a herd of red deer from cover and the rush and tumultuous sound of their galloping created a most holy panic among the women. It was some time before Egraine could get them on the march again. As the night wore on, they began to lag from sheer weariness. Two or three were feeble as sickly children, and the abbey life had done little for the body, though it had done much to deform the mind. Egraine had to turn tyrant in very earnest. She knew the women looked to her for courage and guidance, and that they would be hopeless without her stronger mind to lead them. She put this knowledge to effect, and held it like a lash over their weakly spirits. Egraine found abundant scope for her ingenuity. When they voted a halt for rest, she vowed she would hold on alone and leave them. The threat made the whole company trail after her like sheep. When they grumbled, she told tales of the savagery and lust of the heathen, and made their fears ache more lustily than did their feet. By such devices she kept them to it for the greater portion of the night, knowing that the shrewdest kindness lay in seeming harshness, and that to humor them was but mistaken pity. At last, heathen or no heathen, they would go no further. It was some hours before dawn. The trees had thinned, and through more open colonnades, 
they looked out on what appeared to be a grass-grown valley sleeping peacefully under the moon. A great cedar grew near, a pyramid of gloom. Malt, the cellarus, grumbling and groaning, crept under its shadows and commended Egrain to purgatorial fire. The rest, limp and spiritless, vowed they would rather die than take another step. Huddling together under the branches, they were soon half of them asleep in an ecstasy of weariness. Egrain, seeing further effort useless, surrendered to the inevitable and lay down herself to sleep under the tree. End of Book 1, Chapter 1